This episode is sponsored by Allison Hammer's new novel, Little Pieces of Me, which is available now, and the link is in the show notes. Following her acclaimed debut novel, You and Me and Us, Allison offers a deeply moving story of family and identity. When a DNA test reveals a long-buried secret, a woman must look to the past to understand her mother and herself. Little Pieces of Me is available now wherever books are sold. I have been seeing Little Pieces of Me all over Instagram with glowing reviews, so I hope you'll check it out. This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview authors about their latest works. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Facebook and Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Today, I am interviewing Lisa Scottolini about Eternal. Lisa is the New York Times bestselling author of 32 novels. She has 30 million copies of her books in print in the United States and has been published in 35 countries. Lisa also writes a weekly column with her daughter for the Philadelphia Inquirer. She has served as president of the Mystery Writers of America and has taught a course she developed, Justice in Fiction, at the University of Pennsylvania Law School, her alma mater. She lives in the Philadelphia area. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Welcome, Lisa. How are you today? I'm terrific, and thank you so much for having me, Cindy. Well, I'm so excited to have you, and I really am looking forward to talking about Eternal. Well, we are both fans of Murder by the Book, so, and we love crime fiction, and we love historical fiction, so we are actually the same person. That's exactly. Right. <laughs> We're the perfect pair. <laughs> I'm divorced twice, so you might be right. <laughs> well, that's so funny that you say that, because I was looking at your website before we were talking, and I saw all those fabulous-looking essay collections that you've done with your daughter, and one of them was entitled something about my third husband's going to be a dog or something right, like that. Right. Well, my third <laughs> husband will be a dog. I know. <laughs> so I now have to go back and read a bunch of those. They all look fantastic, and I just had not encountered them before. Well, thank you. They really are fun. And in a way, they, you know, it's funny. All writing leads to writing because I think they're, they're short. And I actually post one on my Facebook page every Sunday at nine o'clock so they can look. But this is a short essay about what our modern times are like, something funny and to the point. And I've been writing those for like 10 years now. And in a way, I think it's sharpened up my, I'm not sure I could have written Eternal before I had had all this practice kind of getting to the point in these columns because I don't always get to the point so fast. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that was one of the other things I saw in some stuff I was reading that initially Eternal had been like a thousand pages. Yeah. (laughs) I put out of my mind. I just was really, it's just, it's such an amazing experience to have written this and writing in general anyway, but I feel happy and proud of it. Yes, I did winnow it down to, you know, like a mere 400 something, but now it's the length of a normal thriller. So I'm fine with that. And I said to myself, Lisa, just because you're writing historical fiction doesn't mean you forget you're a thriller writer. So I I think of it as honestly, it's historical fiction at the pace of a thriller. That is what I believe. I like that. That's a good way to kind of, you know, give the quick synopsis for it. One of the Goodreads people, and I read all those Goodreads reviews, God bless them. And it said, you know, this book is uh, almost 500 pages and I couldn't put it down. I'm like, that's what I want, baby. That's what I'm trying. That's always a good sign. Well, what I usually do is have an author start out with just kind of their quick synopsis of the book so that people that haven't read it yet have a general idea what it's about. Well, it's really about three, it's a love triangle set in fascist Italy. That's it. That was my idea. I kind of got the idea for writing about fascist Italy from a long ago course I took in college with Philip Roth, believe it or not. I went to Penn and he taught a year-long seminar about only 15 kids. And this was before he was like the big Philip Roth, right? And it, he introduced us to the work of Primo Levi, who was a, 
an Italian chemist who was captured by the Nazis and lived, an Italian Jew, lived to write the story Survival in Auschwitz. And I was like, I, I want to learn about this time period. And since then, I've been obsessed with it. You know, I've read about it and I've watched movies about it. And then I watched movies made in that time and then read books written by authors in that time. And I, I just said to myself, okay, imagine if you fall in love in the 1930s and you have your two best friends and they're both hunky guys. One's like, it's Elizabeth is the main character. And she wants to be a writer someday. But, you know, God knows if she's going to get the chance because she has to really support herself. And as a single mom, I kind of know that feeling. <laughs> and so she falls in love with her two best friends who also fall in love with her. And one is named Marco, and he's hunky and sexually magnetic and gorgeous and, and a cyclist. But he kind of has a secret in that he he is actually dyslexic. He doesn't know that because in 1930s Rome, he wouldn't know that. He knows he can't read. And he knows he's embarrassed to tell anybody that. So he feels stupid. And then their other friend is a guy named Sandra, who's really, really good at math and a very lovely guy also, and a good listening ear for her. And she can't decide between these two guys and how great they are. And then what starts to happen is fascism comes on because you had to join the party. So everybody is in the party. And I learned all this stuff about how people think Mussolini copied Hitler. Actually, Hitler copied Mussolini. Mussolini started the first fascist party in the, in the world. And basically started having youth compulsory youth groups. So they're all fascists. And they're not really political. They're just living their life. Because I started to think about, well, how does this sort itself out? Elizabeth isn't political at all. But Marco, who feels inferior because he can't read and stuff, finds in fascism because their appeal was, I said to you, what would it, their pitch was ultranationalism. Oh, you're very special because you're Roman. And Romans conquered the world. And you can't argue with that. It's kind of true. So he goes, yes, I'm Roman. I'm a son of Lazio. I'm a son of Roma. And he becomes a fascist at the time when his friend, Sandro, who's Jewish, uh, at the beginning, fascism was not anti-Semitic at all. Sandro's family is fascist. In fact, Jews joined the fascist party in the same proportion as Gentiles. And the, pre the mayor of Rome was Jewish. So in the beginning, fascism looks like just kind of a really conservative political party. And then what happens is this starts to turn. And when Mussolini starts to side with Hitler, it becomes anti-Semitic. And then Sandro's world changes. And the question is, what does that do to his best friend, Marco? And how does that affect Elisabetta? And that's the journey these characters go on. But in some ways, it's not any different from what I've done before. It's still a story about love and family and justice. And I've been writing about that for 30 years. Well, I'd love to talk in a minute a little bit more about the switch from thrillers to historical fiction. But first, I just was so curious because I didn't realize first that Mussolini had kind of founded those youth organizations and that Hitler copied him. But I also didn't realize that there were any type of concentration camps in Italy or that Jews were actually sent to them from Italy. That was something I was completely unfamiliar with. And I have read so many World War II stories. That's exactly my experience. I couldn't even believe there were concentration camps in Italy. And then I visited one. And I must tell you, it's very interesting because, you know, in doing all this research, and as I say, it took a lot of years and a few trips. And I talked to a lot of experts and I read everything. But one of the experts, one was an expert in Italian Juru who helped me very much with this book. But another was a guy, I'm not going to identify him, but I said, you know, because what bothered me, and I also was a former lawyer that I was like, gee, this bad thing happened in Rome, and this is essentially a war crime, and why was there no Nuremberg about this? And he said to me, nobody wanted another Nuremberg. 
And I realized to a certain extent it was being swept under the rug. So when you go, I think Italy is kind of just recently acknowledging it. But I can tell you, I went to the concentration camp there. It's only open one day a week for visits. So that tells you that it's not really inviting a lot of information to be disseminated about it. Right. And even I took a, a train there. It's like three hours outside of Rome and a cab to the camp. And the the cab driver said to me, he was very quiet. And then he said, to, which is unusual for a cab driver. And he said to me, uh, he dropped me off. He said, this is a dark this is a dark black mark on our soul. So what I'm trying to say to you is, I don't think it's an accident that you didn't know about it. And when I think that Philip Roth in saying to us, and he really taught, really pushed Primo Levi in the curriculum. He said, this, this man is not well enough known. This period in time is not well enough known. He was right. And I was like, in fact, all this time I thought, someone's going to tell this story, Lisa, and you're going to get done out of it. Because, And I finally said, you better just tell it because you're not getting any younger. And and but I, I I and there's so many little incidents that were true, some harrowing, but also some uplifting that I think are all in the novel. And at the end, I explain what's true and what's not. So that's the cool thing about. I don't want. To, I think it's true about historical fiction, but I must say I think it's true about crime fiction as well. You learn a lot from if anybody's writing, anybody's deserves your money as an author and is writing a book that delivers. You're going to learn from them. You're going to learn about police procedure or forensic procedure or law or criminal law. You know, I feel like I've learned from any, I've tried to learn from anything I've written and I've tried to teach people from anything I've written, except that it's in a really compelling story. Those are my favorite types of books where I feel like there's a very compelling page turning story, but I come out of it with some bit of knowledge I didn't know before. Sometimes many bits of knowledge, but, you know, at least something that I didn't know before. Well, that's why I said, tell me something I don't know. I, got, I kind of, that's my little secret thing. And I felt so much when I doing this research, it was only a question of like, how do I get all this in? And I was happy that I did because I, and people can go to my website. I filmed all this stuff. There was so much information about it, the background for it, that I've done something I've never done for any novel. I actually have been on Facebook lives every Tuesday night for 20 weeks, showing the research, talking about, not talking about the novel per se, because I don't want to give away any spoilers. But talking about the background and all the stuff I learned and just to enrich the reading experience. And it's going to be all on my website and people can get it because I, I feel the same way too. But you got to tell the story and you got to make it moving. And I think it is. Well, absolutely. The story should be the first part of it. I mean, you should start with the idea, I'm going to write this story and tell the story and then weave in the details so that they're a portion of the story. It's not like you turn away for three pages and write you know, a little history tome and then turn back to your story. I mean, it should exactly. be interwoven. And I think that exactly. works the best. But I'd love to hear a little bit more about your research. Well, it was, it was amazing to do because it was, it was getting a lot of books. I, I'm kind of a book buyer. I love, and I'm lucky to be able to do that and afford it. And studying them, books of the period, about the period, nonfiction, which I all acknowledged in the, in the book and on my website, but also fiction of the period. For example, you have to understand the way people talked at the time. And I don't mean the dialogue per se, as much as I mean, for example, you know, you're always trying to, you have to plumb your own life to make something true. So for Elisabetta, uh, you know, you think of what are your milestones when you're growing up? What are you becoming a woman? What, what is a woman? Well, I thought of my first bra. I remember getting my first bra and I actually gave my experience to Elisabetta. That's right. You but, did. <laughs> I, I did. Thank you for reading it. What happened is, and what happens to her is her classmates go up to her because she's a tomboy. I was a tomboy too. And the class, the girls, the mean girls that came out again, you need to wear a bra. We can see your nipples. <laughs> I was like, 
oh my God, it's mortifying. I was mortified. And I walked around and I couldn't, we couldn't get it. My mother said, you don't need a bra. You're too young. I'm in sixth grade. Everyone else has bras. It's a nightmare. And I wanted to, now then you have to go research. You got to find out what, what's a bra, what are they made of? So I end up, it's funny. I'm lucky enough to, for the other books to have a translate. I'm published in Italy. So I have an Italian translator. And I noticed that she always kind of goes above and beyond. Like she'll write me, what does this phrase mean? And so I call her, I go, can you find out how to make, like, do you have any, is your grandmom alive? <laughs> yeah, she is. Okay, can you, let's get her on the phone. And so you get the information and also you get the way they talk. You know, for example, I remember it with respect to Elizabeth and the bra because, you know, we would say gossip now or mean girls, but that isn't how they talked in the 1930s. They said, when somebody was talking mean about you, they said, they're talking behind their hands about you. And I just loved how visual that was too. Like, oh, you know, you can see you cover your mouth and you talk behind your hands. And Elisabetta feels that. And so I use that phrase. You know, you really immerse yourself in the research, just really immerse yourself in it and just then hope that you can synthesize it. Like I say, it was a big, long manuscript in the beginning. And then I got it down by just going, what do I essentially need for the story? Not everything, but what really do I need? Because your typical thriller, and certainly one that I write, it happens over like a period of three days in the book. You know, this was a book that I've never had to move time so quickly as I did in this. This spans a 20-year period, which was Mussolini's reign. You know, Mussolini's rise and fall was a ventennio. So I had to move time quickly, and I, uh, you know, had to deal with that. Well, that's so interesting on the language, because I think that's something that you see readers comment a lot about with historical fiction, is when writers do pull phrases from now or even, you know, the 1980s, when the book is set in 1930s or 1850s, or, you know, it really stands out. So the fact that you focused on that, I think is fabulous, because it's distracting. And I think it pulls you out of the story if all of a sudden you're like, I don't think this word was around then. Exactly. Was this word around then? And I even did some stuff like, I, I'm lucky to be able to afford it, but it cost 200 bucks. But, you know, Elisabetta wants to be a writer. And so I wanted to understand. What I'm trying to say is I bought her typewriter. <laughs> I did the research to figure out what typewriter she would have bought. And it was an Olivetti. And then I ended up doing the falling to the wormhole of the Olivetti family, which was a devoted anti-fascist. They fought fascism. I'm like, they deserve my money. So I bought Elisabetta's typewriter. And my God, I have to tell you, first off, interestingly, as a fact question, it has white keys. Really? Now, Cindy, right? Now, if I had described that typewriter, I would have said it had black keys. And people who knew better would have said, no, no. The Olivetti's in the 1930s had white keys. And I would have been wrong, which I never want to be wrong. Like that, my job is to have the facts right. But also I got all the other stuff like, you know, what do the keys sound like? And how do, what do they jam? And, and, and how gleamy it is. It's really a gleaming thing. I'll put a picture of it on my website. You'll see, it's just like a beautiful thing. And I have to tell you that this is corny, but when I touched the keys, I was like, ah, oh, I'm Elisabetta. <laughs> you get like a little carried away with it. But you need to get carried away with it. As, as anyone who writes knows, you need to inhabit, inhabit each of the characters to channel them, to say what they're going through and to, you know, have their personality come out through your senses. To bring them alive. If to bring, exactly. But I think that's right. I mean, I think that if you don't do that, then it's very flat and it's easy to tell, okay, that, 
either there wasn't enough research to inhabit this person in the right time, but also there just wasn't enough thought about developing the character and who they really were and what they thought about and what was important to them, all of those things. That's really nice of you to say. And I think that's really true because sometimes you sit there, I mean, you're racking your brain. I have terrible insecurity. I'm like, oh, I can't do it. What am I doing? I I'm doing it. And I felt that all my life. So you sit there and you go, okay, well, this makes it real to you feel like they're real now. And so that's the essential part. Like it's not a history lesson and it's not a textbook. You know, the reason, there's a lot of reasons why this probably isn't well, well known, all these facts outside the scholarship. But part of it is because nobody wants to study anymore. And I don't blame them. Like we don't have, there's no exams. So you have to, and I'm not a historian. I want to tell a really compelling story. And I, when I came to it, I said, you know, don't worry if you can't write historical fiction. Like, don't think of it that way. You're just a novelist. You're a lady in the suburbs. You're just going to write the story out. And you do know how to pace things, if not the first draft, the second. So just try to write it so that it reads fast or try to edit it so that it reads fast. And that's just what I did. Well, did you find other changes that, you know, writing thrillers normally and then switching to historical fiction, like what other things were a little different? You know what? I, what's surprising? There's two things. The, the first, the first thing is contrary to what you're asking. Is there's so much that's the same, and that was kind of nice for me, and that should be nice for people listening who want to try to write different things. That gee, you're writing about justice and love and family your whole life. So if you said it in Delaware, it's not different from it if you said it in Pennsylvania or Rome or the 2010 or the 1930s. That's why I think people who like my previous books are going to love this one because it has that essence. Whatever the scottolininess is, the interest, right? I've been writing about Italian Americans in my whole life. Somebody wrote in the Goodreads review, and I read this good review. I love all my reviews. I read it. Brave. I I don't mind. Listen, look, you gotta you gotta read everything. You gotta hear what people say, and I'm glad that they have a ways to express it. Honestly, one of them said I kept expecting Mary Denunzio to pop out. Like, yeah, right. It's still me, guys. And <laughs> and I'm going to write historical fiction again, and it's going to be very similar subject matter. And we're all going for this ride, I hope. I'm very grateful to my readers who will let me grow. Because I will tell you that if you don't, as a writer, challenge yourself, you start writing the same thing, or you don't do what you wanted to do your life first, that's not how you should spend your life. But I do think things get stale. I've read people, I think, oh, this is a little stale. You, you You want to you want that freshness. I do. I, I want it for myself and I, and I know readers experience it. Every single one of these reviews starts out the same way. They start out, I've read her before and I didn't know if this would be good, but it really is. <laughs> You're like, thanks, <laughs> I think. <laughs> no, no, I'll take it. I'll take it. That's so honest. And I get that. Listen, I've been doing this for 30 years. I, I hope I'm known for something, you know, but I can do this too. And they're with me. How great is that? I'm so lucky. I'm just so lucky. I don't know how long your series have gone, but I mean, you haven't written like a 32 book series. You get to the end of those and after a while you're like, okay, is there anything else this character can do? I mean, you know, you reach a point where there isn't, but you have several series, a number of standalones, the right. nonfiction. So, I mean, you right. have done your part for, you know, reaching out different ways and not leaving yourself just with the same one or two characters. Eternally. And I think it all does benefit you. And this book was different in how it was different was that when I learned about this event, which I kind of don't want to give away a lot of stuff, but that real people were involved, you know, even in the murder thrillers, you know, you're, it's one murder. And I always has, that has a gravity to it. Like you have to slow down with that. I, I've never done books where like there's a serial killer and by the eighth, we figure it out. I can't, I can't emotionally. So in this book, you go, well, how can you make a Holocaust personal? And this is one that people don't even know about. 
Uh, so I said, all right, just, you have to a certain extent, that's a responsibility I never had before. And having gone to the memorial, because I ended up going to, in Rome to the memorial of this event, which was 75 years later, and met people who had descended from people who were killed and saying, talking to them, and they were really happy to talk about because they feel like I do. They feel like no one knows about this. Like it should be more world, Italians may know about it, but outside of Italy, they don't. And they want it known. And look, even now there's Holocaust deniers. So I felt that I had them with me and I had a responsibility to them. Some of those names are included in this book, just as a tribute. And I feel the weight of that, but also the importance of that, you know, that I take it very, very seriously. And I did in this book. Well, that was one of the things I wanted to ask you a little bit more about was the title, with the title being called Eternal, where that came from exactly. I'm such a title and usually cover person also. I just love to sort of hear how they came about and, you know, everything. But I was particularly curious about your title. Okay. So I'll tell you, because secretly <laughs> I was in Rome this one day and I ate this pizza, which made me cry. It was so good, but that's not the point. And I, I was actually looking out at Rome and I saw, um, it's the view that Elisabetta has in the first page where I learned the word for it, which was palimpsest, you know, that, which is the idea that you, it came from the olden days when they wrote over something and then you could still see underneath it what there was. So what you were looking at is layers of time that was visible to you. And when I was in Rome, I saw like the Roman ruins right there and there's brick and then right with a modern shop. And I was like, because Rome, they just they don't take away anything and they couldn't. It's Roman ruins, but it's all cheek by jowl. And I said, you know, this is palimpsest of buildings, but it's also palimpsest of families. And I am a palimpsest. Like we are all, if you're going to tell stories of families, which all I've done my whole life, like the denunzios are a family. And the standalones are usually about a family. You go, people say something like, you know, I'm becoming my mother. <laughs> and I thought about that with like Faulkner going, the past isn't even past. And the answer is, no, I am my mother. I'm my daughter too. Or it, there is a conflation of time, of past and present and future in all of us in all of our families. You know, families are the perfect analogy of a generation. The generation is like a layer of marble or a layer of brick. You build over it, but it's always there. And it's all of a piece, all existing, all at the same time. And that thought I had about the palimpsest of buildings and families and each family having a story is the reason the book is titled Eternal. I absolutely love that. And I had to look up palimpsest. <laughs> I was like, what is that word? So I've got my phone out and, you know, Miriam Webster and I'm looking it up. So, but now that we're talking, I, I knew because I looked it up when I was reading your book. I had, to, I had to have it play for me. So I knew how to pronounce it. I was like, we was like a lot of readers, right? We know what the word is and we know what it means. We just don't know how to say it. And I was like, that is what's going on in this book. So that's the secret reason for the title. People will think it's because Rome is the eternal city. And I don't know if that's why it's Rome is the eternal city, but that's why the title is eternal. I love that. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but I know you don't have time for that. So before we wrap up, I would love to hear what you've read recently that you really liked. I mean, I loved Sunflower Sisters by Martha Hall Kelly. I, I loved Chris Bajelian has written a wonderful thing called The Hour of the Witch, which is about a woman uh, during um, in Massachusetts who is being abused by her husband, and, it's, and then she gets called a witch. 
I mean, I've always read historical fiction, and it's apt to mention now Paula McLean, who, interestingly enough, I've read as historical fiction author, but is now writing suspense. I loved her new suspense, which is called When the Stars Go Dark. I'm reading Lisa C., The Island of Sea Women. I, I love to read, and especially during the pandemic, I find myself reading more and more, and it makes me happy. And uh, so th- those are some of the current stuff I'm loving. And I keep seeing a lot about all of those. And I just watched The Flight Attendant on HBO Max, the Chris Bajalian. Yeah, it was so good. Great. And meanwhile, you're watching this perfect example for what we're talking about. You go, wait, the guy who wrote this stewardess who wakes up with the bloody guy just wrote a book about Salem witch trial, or not Salem witch trial, but a putative witch. And you're like, what a guy. He's really terrific. I mean, he's a wonderful guy. Wonderful writer too. And then I was thinking about Paula McLean earlier when we were talking because she's doing, like you just said, the flip from historical fiction to thriller versus you going thriller to... I love seeing all these people switching genres. I think it's really fun. Well, thank you for being so open-minded. I really, I think, I hope that most readers are as open-minded and open-hearted as you. It's really lovely and encouraging. I'm sure they will be. Well, I can't thank you enough, Lisa, for spending the time with me today on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Well, thank you so much, Cindy. And I hope I get to see you in person at Murder by the Book. Exactly. Next year, it sounds like. Hopefully, we'll be back to that. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you like this episode, and I hope you did, please follow me on Instagram at Thoughts From A Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Lisa's book can be purchased at the Conversations From A Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks so much to Allison Hammer and her new book, Little Pieces of Me, for sponsoring this episode. And please check out her book. I have heard so many great things about it. I hope you'll tune in next time. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardknowpodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.